0: All right, welcome to FinTech Beat. Astute listeners will notice that this is not Chris Brummer, but a friend of his. My name is Amaya Scarity, and Chris asked me to jump on the show again to host it this week. So this week, I'm excited to dive in with a very special guest to talk about entrepreneurship, financial empowerment, and the creation of opportunity for everyone in our society. And I'll start with this question. Is entrepreneurship the most powerful force in American society? It certainly animates Silicon Valley, venture capitalists, fintech. But is entrepreneurship a privilege for the few or a movement that all can partake in? And today's special guest, John Hope Bryant, has dedicated his life to the idea that entrepreneurship is the central tenet of financial empowerment. From middle schoolers building businesses to getting banks to convert unused branch space into a national network of financial counseling centers. He has touched millions of lives with the message that business and capitalism is an opportunity for all of us. He's a policy advocate who has been counseling presidents for most of his adult life, an entrepreneur who has built the largest minority-controlled for-profit owner of single-family rentals in the country, a man with millions of social media followers, and a friend of mine. John Hope Bryant has joined us to talk about his journey as an entrepreneur and advocate and to share some lessons and perspective about what the venture ecosystem can miss about the power of small businesses and entrepreneurship.
1: Classic, classic. Classic. I'm
0: better than ever been. You have really dedicated your life. I mean, you're, you know, this is a podcast, so people can't see, but you're wearing a shirt that says entrepreneur on it, yep. right? So, so tell us how you came to view entrepreneurship as so central to make it not just a calling for you, but a mission for everyone that you touch.
1: Uh, sure. So it was the only solution that solved anything, is the short answer. I was, you know, my mom and dad came from the South, built a net worth, argued over money, got divorced over money. Number one calls of divorce is money. Dad could make it, make it, but couldn't spend it. My mother was a financial genius in managing it, but they couldn't get on the same page. We built assets, lost generational wealth. Then my, the guy who saved my life when I was seven years old, my play uncle was selling drugs to make money part time. He was killed by uh, some guys who had the territory he was selling marijuana in, literally ran him down in front of me riding a bicycle as I was waiting for him to come home. I'm seven years old. Number uh, three, my best friend George, smarter than me, had more talent than me in a a classroom, uh, but he had bad parents. I had good parents. Anyway, he decided that I wanted to hang around him because he was smart, and he decided he wanted to hang around the drug dealer who was next to me because he wanted to make some money. And he was murdered when I was nine years old. So here you have experience. You have you have this sort of these financial managers and these financial savers and financial uh, hustlers. My mom and dad, but they lost it all. Then you had this uh, non-conventional financial cash creator, my play uncle, and he lost it all. Literally lost his life. And then you had the illegal drug trade, or the 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 guy who was really more educated than me, but he didn't think education was enough, so he went the illegal roof, and he lost it all. And so by the time I'm nine years old, I'm going, you know, money is a central theme of all this, but this life can't be about money because that step, that plan for them for all these folks didn't work well. So how do you build wealth? Because making money and building wealth are two different things. You make money during the day. Anybody can make money. You can make money on Wall Street. You can also be a drug dealer, obviously. I mean, you can make money. Making money in and of itself is not virtuous. How do you build wealth? Wealth is a mindset. So I go to Classroom, Amaya's. I'm nine years old, home economics class, first year of CRA, 1977. Mm. White banker, white shirt, red tie, blue suit, Compton, California, home economics, teaching financial literacy. Raise my hand, second session, excuse me, sir, what do you do for a living and how did you get rich legally? (laughs) He said, young man, I'm a banker and I finance entrepreneurs. I said, sir, I don't know what that word is. No one's, I'm nine years old. No one's ever taught me that word or mentioned that word my entire life. But I tell you what, if you're financing it and it's legal, I'm going to be one. And I went home and opened up the dictionary. Hello, FinTechers. That's called a Google search today. I opened up the dictionary and to the word entrepreneur, French word, build something from nothing, create value where it didn't exist before, short version. And I said, I'm going to do that. And I started my first business, the Neighborhood Candy House, put the liquor store out of the candy business when I was 10 years old, made $300 on a $40 investment. So I did have the return on investment. But more importantly, I had this feeling in myself of self-determination. It was legal. It was honest. I could pay my taxes. I had more coming in that was going out. I had independence. I had freedom, if I've already mentioned that, freedom to self-determination. And I had knowledge and ability that I could do for myself. And I knew if I wanted to be in the candy business, I'd be a candy bear, But that wasn't my calling. I wanted to do something that was socially good, not just privately beneficial. So
0: the rest of my story you can read in books, I guess. Actually, walk us through a bit more, John. What happened after your candy market experience? Where do you go from there? And how does that experience impact your beliefs about entrepreneurship?
1: It was... um, you know, uh, 10 years of being lost in the wilderness of failed businesses. Uh, it's sort of like the story of Jesus. Like people say, well, where's Jesus until he was 17? i being, <laughs> being a teenager. Like there's no there's no knowledge of the dude until he was 17. He was out doing what does, everybody does until they're 17. So, you know, up until I was 18 years old, I was lost in the wilderness of failure, 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 failure which is why I, I, today I take no for vitamins. There's no good entrepreneur who's not Who doesn't embrace failure is almost a virtue. No, just means not yet to me. And um, I was homeless when I was 18. So by the time I was 19 years, 20 years old, I just built on resilience, man. And but I had but I had that early success. And luckily, I had a good business plan. I wasn't afraid of white people, nor did I have a negative experience like my black friends in the hood had with a police officer. I had a positive experience with a white person. I just mentioned it, the banker, also the people in my my teachers who, who bought my mail order Stacy Adams shoes I was selling, or whatever I was selling out of my briefcase <laughs> in Compton. And I just never – so so that's my philosophical and personal answer. The literal answer, though, is that all legitimate wealth in the world came from entrepreneurship and small business. We can't have this podcast right now without entrepreneurs. Right. The entrepreneur created the, the technology we're using. The entrepreneur created the machinery we're using. An entrepreneur created every innovation behind you in that room from the doors to the lights to the microphone. But we don't give credit for it.
0: Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, the, the thing that I love about this, and I, I say this to the companies we invest in, and I, you know, I'm honored enough to to advise and help is you've got the hardest job in the world because every other job, if you if you know, if I don't do it, someone else would do it. They'd hire someone else to do it. But only the entrepreneur lives in a zone where if they don't do it, no one else would do it. So it's financial literacy month. This is a big month for you know, people to talk a little bit about financial empowerment. But you and I, when we talk, we usually talk about financial empowerment. We talk about wealth creation more than we talk about financial literacy. So maybe just share with you a little bit of the audience, like why is that different? And why do you focus where you focus rather than where some others focus on the, the idea of understanding dollars and cents versus understanding how to empower yourself?
1: Yeah so financial literacy is the language like learning a different, like learning Japanese but financial empowerment is getting on a plane and going to Japan checking into a hotel and going to understand the culture meeting the people it's growing your mental and a psychological spiritual and literal understanding and relationship based through exposure and wealth creation is then starting a business in Japan to meet a need based on your new financial literacy knowledge and building an asset base in Japan. So, financial literacy is nothing more in this example than understanding the rules of the game or getting what I call the memo. As you know, I wrote a book called The Memo. I wrote a book that most recently, Up From Nothing, uh, The Untold Story of How We All Succeed. And I've got literally a formula in there of how people can succeed that I'm willing to bet money will work for anybody listening to this podcast. Uh, five sort of pillars of success. So I think that people confuse the discussion because money's confusing. If you think about Black America, where we succeeded, where the rules are published and the playing field is level, professional sports, the creative arts, politics, the rules are published, the playing field is level, either you got the votes or you didn't, either they like the song or they don't, either you were first on the relay race or you weren't. Either you dunk more basketball baskets than somebody else or not. It's real easy. Capitalism, free enterprise, economics, ownership, opportunity is is amorphous. There's no memo. And unfortunately, as we just mentioned, after the Civil War, as we pivoted to a Freedmen's Bank charter to teach free slaves about money, financial literacy, Lincoln was killed. Literally this this month. He was killed April 8th, I believe it was, uh, a month after he signed the Freedmen's Bank Uh, mandate. So what I'm saying is if you're you're a woman, if you're a minority group, if you're poor whites, if you're underserved, you have to have a business plan for your life. And if you're going to be excluded, if no one's going to include you, if you hang around nine broke people, you'll be the 10th. You've got to find a different pathway out of your situation. Otherwise, you're going to replicate the poverty around you. And entrepreneurship is that beautiful, elegant model that anybody can do. It's completely accessible to me and you. Uh, and 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 as my story i think illustrates i closed a 200 million dollar credit facility in december for my promise homes company up from homelessness when i was 18 years old
0: it's an incredible story maybe pause there john cuz promise homes is is the opposite side of the story right you start as a child selling you know candy and now you you've created a a real you know a, a big company What what is the Promise Homes Company? And just give us a thumbnail on on the story of of how that came to be.
1: Promise Homes Company is my attempt to show you can be a capitalist and not to be a jerk at scale. So uh, you can do well and do good too. So I I created it in 2017 in June, literally part-time. I've only run it with 10 or 15% of my time because I spend most of my time on my broke nonprofit, which I absolutely love. Uh, It's not so broke anymore, but it, it does take up most of my time. And the beautiful part about it is that it it is completely intellectually and spiritually honest, and it's profitable. Financial literacy for every resident for free. We contract through Operation Hope. We pay Operation Hope a fee, just like every other partner does. So no one says that I'm getting any benefit that's unique to me because I'm the founder of all the organizations. Number two, we provide minority contracting for 65% of every contract, vendor contract at Promise Homes. So plumbing contracts. Uh, lighting contracts, roofing, electrical, concrete, painting, all the landscaping, the stuff that goes on. We have to hire somebody anyway, so I decided to let's focus on minority-owned businesses where 55 to 65% of all contracts go to minorities. That's millions of dollars a year in what I call renewable philanthropy leading to job creation and wealth creation. So it's not philanthropy, but I don't know something more powerful than creating living wage jobs and wealth creation contracts in black and brown neighborhoods is a way to be philanthropically responsible every year. And, and and it's rebootable in the millions of dollars. The bigger I grow the company, the more contracts I can give. The third thing is we're giving folks a path to rent to own. So if you rent from me and you pay your rent on time, then I'll give you a chance to own the home that you're renting from. And there are other incentives that we've sure. paid for for the residents, but we're not antagonists. We don't have an antagonistic relationship to, I call them residents, not renters. We have a collaborative relationship and if you raise your credit score to 700, I'll reduce your your rent by 10%, which most of my residents don't believe when I first tell them, because they're used to their landlord just pounding them. And so I grew that company, and four years into it, we sold that company, did a recapitalization for $120 million in December, paid off all my investors, paid the banks off, uh, plus their return. In other words, no discounts. It, this, there's no government incentives or government hook hookup. Hook there's no affirmative action. There's nothing... It's a completely commercial business model, right? That works, and now my goal is to grow it from 150 million dollars of assets now to, because I sold the company from me to me to me and some partners, to now a billion dollars in assets. Under the theory, the bigger I grow it, the more contracts I can let to viable, credible vendors. And
0: well, I think it's a it's a great example of how innovation doesn't require. You know, tech or or a fancy app, right? You you came up with an idea. You saw an, an underserved market. You saw an opportunity to put the pieces together in a financial arrangement that made sense for a change in the world, not just because the the app is slick or the you know the website is pretty.
1: Yes, but uh, I don't use the word "but" often, uh, but I'll use that "but" as a pivot to the word "and." But and so, yes, you're right. But. I don't believe you can be a growth anything today and not have technology at the center of what you do. Yeah. So so and so and Operation Hope is rooted in technology. We have three million followers on social media. That's digital. I do. Uh, Operation Hope has hundred thousands of followers. We we do videos every day. That's digital. We have a robust slick website. That's digital. We have an app uh, for client engagement. That's digital. We have a, we have client uh, management software. Of course, that's technology and digital. We're increasingly pivoting at Operation Hope to technology, and Promise Homes Company is in part going to be a tech-based operation in order to scale and grow some of the solutions that we created. And also, we believe that the human capital solutions that we are providing to our residents are also a form of software. It's a human capital software upgrade. So yes, it's not not traditional technology, but we still think that this is fintech. We still believe this is tech-centric. We still believe that this is a new technology, even though some of it's human capital-based technology.
0: Yeah, I love the message of human capital as a form of software. You know, there are many who think we are, you know, in Silicon Valley, think we might be living in a civil simulation, and and all of our just brains are running software. But I think you've you've grounded that in a slightly more uh, realistic view of the world, which is we operate through the world, and and we're we're always trying to learn. Uh, grow stronger, grow better, and, and you've certainly been a great advocate for that. So we just want to thank you for coming on. Any uh, any closing thoughts for the, the audience?
1: Yes. Uh, one, they're lucky to have you. Two, we're living in a moment in history, but history does not feel historic when you're sitting in it. It just feels like another day. I think that this is the third reconstruction between 2020, the start of the pandemic, and 2030. And I think this is social justice through an economic lens. Uh, and I think there's a fortune, literally, trapped in the bottom of this economic pyramid, to quote another author, but at the bottom of uh, 50% of this economic quotient equation, um, uh, whether it's poor whites or, or women or uh, minority different minority groups, the struggling class is where the untapped potential is to create two to 3% of sustainable GDP growth uh, for this country in the next generation, I think, of GDP uh, excellence. And, and so to put another another way for those listening to this who are doing well and sitting in Silicon Valley or wherever they're sitting. My rich friends need my poor friends to do better, if only to stay rich. So my wealthy friends should try to be lo- to be looking for the next John Hope Bryant. Is there a Steve Jobs in Detroit? Is there a Steve Jobs in Anacostia? Is there a Steve Jobs in South Central LA? Of course they are, they're called drug dealers. <laughs> and you may, be, you may be immoral and unethical, uh, but one and, and and it's not a sustainable business plan but amaya what you're not is dumb you understand import export finance marketing wholesale retail customer service security territory and logistics I'm not saying go uh, go find a drug dealer to invest in that's not what I'm saying I'm saying that th- there but but the, for the grace of God there go I that anybody listening to this who's done well, if, if they weren't blessed with relationships and somebody to tap them on the shoulder and somebody who, or they're born into the right family and said, I got you, that they would be maybe that untapped Steve Jobs that was not found and was forced to do something unsavory to make a living in these neighborhoods. What would happen if people listening to this found and intentionally targeted talent in underserved neighborhoods to come up from nothing?
0: Yeah. Well, John, thank you again for your time. We always appreciate it. Thank you for caring. Is entrepreneurship the most powerful force in our society? Maybe. And I won't bet against it. For John Hope Bryant, it certainly proved true. As in his words, it was the only solution that solved anything in his life. He called it that beautiful, elegant model that can work for everyone. Now, I think John has some great messages for people in fintech. I love the reminder that you can be a capitalist and not be a jerk every founder should constantly remember that people's financial lives are complicated and they need help. Those nuances of real life can't be ignored by government or industry if, as John mentioned, we're really going to get, quote, the memo, as he called it. April is a great time to reflect on the importance of the language of money and the power of self-determination. It's something critical for not only Financial Literacy Month, but I hope we can carry this reminder to the rest of the year as well. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, D-R. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.